Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Before we get started today, just want to remind everyone about the Behind the Knife fundraiser. Uh, we are selling t-shirts online. The easiest way to find us is to search Behind the Knife and custominc.com, and you'll find it go right to the site. Uh, also, the site is listed on our Twitter page as well as our website. We thank everyone who already bought a shirt, and for those who are thinking about getting a shirt, we only have nine days to go. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Absolutely pleased to have Dr. Hassan Alam, who's the Norman Thompson Professor of Surgery and Section Head for the Section of General Surgery at University of Michigan. Uh, Hassan, welcome to Behind the Knife. Well, thank you for the uh, kind invitation. You, uh, you know, you did some time in a lot of different places in some absolutely prestigious institutions. Uh, what we like to do is to start out with everybody and uh, have all our listeners here firsthand. Uh, where are you from? How to get to the point where you became Section Chief General Surgery? Where did you train? All that. Yeah, so uh, uh, I came to the U.S. for surgical training. I trained in D.C. My first job was at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences, uh, which, as you probably know, is the medical school for the armed forces. Uh, I was also in faculty at Georgetown, and I did my trauma um, work at the Washington Hospital Center. I was there as a faculty for about five years. Um, I was there through uh, September 11th. Uh, we received all the uh, casualties from the Pentagon at that time. And I uh, started my research at Uniform Services University, and as you can imagine, it was uh, leaning towards combat casualty care, hemorrhage control, resuscitation, uh, novel ways of, of resuscitating uh, uh, severely uh, injured uh, patients. And then I got recruited to go to, uh, uh, to Boston. Uh, I was on faculty at the Harvard Medical School, uh, and I did my clinical work at Mass General Hospital. Um, I was there for about seven years or so, uh, uh, rose to the rank of professor, and then they made me an offer at the University of Michigan that I couldn't refuse, so here I am in Ann Arbor. Uh, here my job is a little different in the sense that I, I still do trauma, uh, but there are seven different divisions under me in general surgery, so, um, so, so it's a little bit broader sort of a stage here. So you've, you've obviously served at a lot of different prestigious academic centers. Uh, you know, we live in a time now where it's dwindling resources, including the demand on volume, clinical demands, things like that. As a section chief over, you said, seven divisions, tell us a little bit about your thoughts about a academic surgery in general, and then kind of as a section chief, how do you allow for academics in this time of diminishing resources? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a very valid question, and, and the places that do um, true academic surgery uh, are... Um, uh, it, it's uh, ever decreasing uh, uh, and a uh, smaller group. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is very much alive in the right place, uh, in the right academic institution that have the resources, they have the right um, DNA, the culture supports it. But you bring up some important points. So uh, there is clearly demand on surgeons' time to do more clinical work, which generates uh, revenue. Uh, so for me to, uh, uh, to support junior faculty member to devote a substantial part of the time doing research that may or may not uh, generate uh, research dollars, especially early on, you have to have some, um, uh, some resources to do it. Since I've been here, I've recruited uh, 
a good number of faculty, probably close to about 18 or so. And the vast majority of them, except for maybe one or two, are on, on tenure track. And each and every one of them requires um, a sign-up package, um, mentorship, lab space, um, you know, uh, dollars um, to start the lab and, and do it. So we think about it very carefully. It's, it's almost like venture capital. So you, you won't want to recruit somebody who doesn't have the uh, track record of doing high-quality research. But for people who do high-quality research, who have a good chance of success, who are uh, competitive in this uh, in this uh, sort of the uh, day and age of, of competitive funding, there's still places that would recruit him. So we are very lucky at Michigan to be able to do it. And a short answer to that is we've got a lot of endowments. We have saved a lot of money. Uh, we have a, a very healthy margin. Uh, and all of that uh, supports the, uh, the academic mission. Well, Dr. Lam, I want to step back real quick. Something you already mentioned that uh, you were in D.C. at the time in 9-11. Uh, I actually want to hear about your experiences when you're taking in casualties at the Pentagon. You know, it's something that, you know, New York City gets a lot of press on this thing, but we don't actually hear a lot of to work. And, I, and then it started unfolding. So they closed the campus and they declared it. I did my trauma call at the Washington Hospital Center, downtown level one trauma center. And they, uh, um, they sent out um, a code for a disaster. Um, so I came out of the campus and I drove um, towards the center of, the, of DC. And it was very surreal and my uh, um, getting out of the campus was, was tough because everyone was lining to get out. And once I got in Wisconsin, there was really no one going into town. Everyone was trying to get out of town. And the cell phone stopped working at that time. So it took me about 30 minutes or so to get to the, uh, to the trauma center. And we were all ready. And then we started getting some of the casualties. It was uh, the striking thing was um, how few patients we got early on. We were uh, anticipating there's going to be hundreds of arrival. And it was um, the ratio of uh, injured to death, dead people was very skewed. So they were walking wounded that walked to the near uh, close by hospitals in Virginia. But the seriously injured, most of them were just dead on the scene. So we started getting some burn patient. I operated on a, on a lady who had free fluid in the abdomen and again, some burns as well. And in the middle of it, we were getting the usual trauma as well. I operated that day on somebody with a femoral artery injury. And we thought like, you know, trying to figure out what happened how was this sort of involved with the, with the Pentagon thing? It was just sort of a, a usual city trauma. So it was pretty uh, uh, surreal in, in, in many ways. The striking thing was how few patients were brought into level one trauma centers. When you have a, a, a pileup on a highway, I mean, you have a few, very few people dead and a lot of uh, injured who are brought in. This was the other way around. Most of the people were dead and pronounced on the scene. Wow. So, sir, it seems like, um, you know, I can definitely see how living this sort of experience, being at a level one trauma center uh, and being involved in the sort of research you were you were doing at the time, that a lot of your research interests have aligned with um, reducing the impact of trauma on casualties. And so I'd like to ask about how you became involved in, uh, you know, one of your earlier research projects, which was the development of quick clot. Yeah. So if you think about it, let me just step back for a second and think about um, trauma. You know, injuries kill more young Americans than all of the diseases put together. Uh, it's a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Uh, you know, cardiovascular diseases, cancer, strokes, they strike people at the uh, uh, later in life. But trauma 
is sort of the killer of young people. And it's a global disease. Now, if you look at why trauma patients die, the two leading causes of death, depending on whether it's blunt or penetrating, is, is uh, CNS injury, head and spinal cord, and bleeding. Um, it's the same for civilian trauma, it's the same for combat casualty, it's, it's the same thing. People either bleed to death or they die, die of uh, severe head injuries. So when I was starting my academic career, as a trauma surgeon, you look at the, the landscape and say, you know, where can I make the biggest impact? Uh, Dr. Trunke described the trimodal distribution of trauma death in 1970s at San Francisco General Hospital. There was an early death within minutes, then there was a second peak within the next few hours, and the third peak sort of over the next few weeks. And what has happened in the last 30, 40 years is the second peak has flattened out. The third peak has completely comp gone away. If you make it to intensive care unit, you will live. You may be on dialysis. You may require ECMO. You may be in there for weeks and months, but the mortality is single, low single digits, two or three percent. Where patients continue to die is in the first hour or so after injury. And if you have to look at this big number of patients and say, you know, where can I do something that would have the largest impact? That'll be hemorrhage control. We have now since then gone into uh, treating traumatic brain injury, but hemorrhage control was the low-hanging fruit. On the uh, on the military side, if you look at uh, what is available and what people do to control hemorrhage in the battlefield. That, that hasn't changed forever. The, uh, the cotton gauze was being used by the Roman legions when they walked uh, uh, this earth. And the uh, tourniquet has been around for a long, long period of time. So really nothing has really changed. And I was sitting in my office after September 11th. I had funding from Office of Naval Research. And I was doing work um, on designing better resuscitation fluid. Uh, my lab was at the Uniform Services University, and my program manager from Office of Naval Research called me. Uh, this is sort of uh, November of 2011. And it said, like, you can you work on developing some new uh, and advanced hemostatic dressings? Uh, this spring, there's most likely going to be some deployment. We'll have uh, some young men and women in harm's way. And all we have is the same uh, first aid. Uh, battlefield kit that we've been using since the uh, since the Vietnam War. Now the the problem with that was I had no animal models for testing that we were not doing that work. Uh, our funding was on uh, focused on resuscitation and not on hemorrhage control. Um, but that was a special time. I mean, we were able to get our protocols modified and approval and all this stuff in record time, and we we did work pretty much day and night trying to find. Uh, anything that will stop bleeding more uh, effectively than cotton gauze. And we must have gone through dozens and dozens of different things. Uh, and quick clot was essentially at that time a zeolite that was being used for scavenging water out of refrigeration units. Uh, it's, um, uh, if you look at it under a microscope, it's got a porous structure. And it's not a chemical reaction. It's a physical property of the zeolite that it uh, absorbs water. Um, so we tested that in, in large animal models of uh, very proximal groin injury, femoral artery, vein transection, really high up where you can't put a tourniquet. Um, and it generated heat, which was the downside, but was amazingly effective at stopping the hemorrhage. So it took up, uh, sucked out all the um, liquid portion of the blood and left all the cells behind that clotted up immediately. Uh, but this was one of about probably two dozen different products that we had tested. And then we had a very rigorous process of either testing them and throwing them away or just sort of taking them to the next level. 
And I think we started testing uh, the zeolite in November, and by May it had FDA approval as a 510K uh, for temporary external use. And that summer it was being used by the special ops in Afghanistan, and next summer um, pretty much every Marine was carrying it in the battlefield when they got deployed to, uh, to Iraq. I don't think it can happen again with this uh, this degree of speed. Uh, once again, it was a unusual time. Yes, sir. Um, Talk about rapid turnaround. It was very rapid turnaround from just sort of a zeolite testing it in pigs. New York Times covered it around that time, and it was again pretty unsettling in the sense that we had done it in you know thirty, forty pigs had never been tested in humans. It was as a sort of a feature thing in New York Times. Um, and, um, you know, my parents have never read any one of my papers, but even they see that. Um, and you feel a little, um, um, uh, you know, it's a little unsure about it because you don't know how this is going to pan out. Um, but it worked out extremely well. So uh, there were two sites at that time. There were uh, Army was funding a lot of work um, at the Army Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio. And, and Navy was funding our lab at the Uniform Service University. And I think there was some amazing collaboration at that time. We shared data, we did it in real time. Uh, they were working on some chitosin-based dressings and we were working on zeolite as well as the chitosin-based dressings. Um, and something good happened. Within a few months, we had brand new advanced hemostatic dressings that were being used. The chitosin-based dressing was used by the Army and uh, the, the zeolite-based dressing, the quick lot, was used by the Marines um, uh, at the initial phase. I'm, I'm just curious, now, oh, I'm sorry, go mm -hmm. continue. No, I just said, like, you know, since then, like, you know, both of those dressings were not the best dressings. The zeolite generated heat, and they were a little messy to work with, almost looked like uh, kitty litter. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the, the newer version of, uh, of Quick Clot is now a, a bandage that has uh, kaolin, which is rather than a zeolite, and it works much better. I do have a, like, I mean, was the immediate response from the time in the field this being used in Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, was it all always positive? Was there a little bit of a learning curve initially? I think there was uh, the initial responses that we get were uh, for the right use were very positive. Uh, I have dozens of those things. So there, you know, in the uh, in the packet there was uh, a form that you could fill out about how it performed and what what your experience was. So it wasn't a randomized study. There were no control groups. I mean, people were sending those things in, and those testimonials were striking. I think the uh, the downside for all of these things um, is you have to use it appropriately. So uh, the the zeolites have an they, they ha there's an exothermic reaction when you put them in a uh, in the liquid, and if you're putting it on the skin for minor wounds, then the risk benefit ratio doesn't justify it. So there were uh, a few patients who um, who had superficial uh, heat injury. Uh, um, and then it required some training and, and educating people about, you know, what's the right indication for doing it. So we created um, uh, a platform for doing it, invited subject matter experts, uh, generated some uh, algorithms for common sense practice that you first you apply pressure, see whether you can apply a tourniquet or not, apply the regular gauze. And if those things work, then you probably don't need an advanced hemostatic dressing, save it for somebody else. Now, if all of those things fail, then you put an advanced hemostatic dressing because then the risk-benefit ratio favors it. Um, so I think there's always a learning curve every time you introduce a new product or a new concept or a new way of managing patients, especially sick patients. The other challenging thing was as opposed to the medics using it, the individual 
Marines were using it. So you were providing care for your buddy next to you. Now, these are 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old kids. They don't have any medical background. Um, So trusting them to use it for the right indication and apply it right, that requires um, uh, education, training, um, disseminating all the information, and and a lot of patience. But it it worked out. Overall, if I look at the risk-benefit and what came out of it, a lot of lives were saved, a lot of limbs were saved. And again, it was used by untrained people in the battlefield. Absolutely, sir. I think it's highly commendable, the effort and, and the outcomes of all that. Um, I'd like to take a step back and um, talk about something very interesting you had said earlier. So you had mentioned that there's this classic trimodal distribution in trauma and that there have been a flattening of those curves. Uh, do you think it's time to reassess the golden hour? Is it still the same concept that was originally suggested? Yeah, I think the golden hour has stuck with people because it... Um, it's a nice uh, slogan. The reality is that uh, patients die in a continuous fashion. It's not that one hour something magical happens. At 58 minutes, you're okay, and, and an hour and two minutes, you're dead. So every minute delay um, increases your chance of dying. You can look at it in 15 minutes, uh, uh, aliquots, or as a continuous variable. When you start bleeding, um, it the uh, the chances of you dying are directly related to how soon you can stop the bleeding. Uh, the way I look at it is resuscitation is an adjunct to hemorrhage control. It's not a substitute. Whether patients live or die uh, depends on whether you can stop the bleeding and how soon you do it. I tell the residents this all the time. If you walk into the trauma bay and you see a hypotensive patient, you have to recognize two things. One, that hypertension in trauma patient is an exceedingly rare thing. Only about 6 or 7% of trauma patients have a systolic blood pressure of less than 90. So you have to recognize that. It's not an everyday event. It's not every patient. It's not half the patients. It's about 6% of the patients. And half of them will die. So something you have to do something fairly quickly. And the time they will die is within the first you know, three hours or so within the first hour, and a, and a biggest spike is within the first 30 minutes. Um, now, if somebody is alive three to six hours later, the chances are they will do just fine because the bleeding has stopped by itself. So that's what we deal with. I mean, that's why we create all these systems. And everything else is a means to an end, whether you put a tourniquet on, whether you put your finger on the bleeder, whether you put quick clot in, whether you you know, put a compression dressing on or do a laparotomy or end you embolize the bleeding site. Those are all means to an end. But your end goal is to stop the bleeding. And if you can stop the bleeding, they have a chance to live. Very rarely in a level one trauma center, you will uh, lose somebody because you don't have blood. Sometimes it happens because they might have a rare blood type or whatnot. Um, Never ever would you lose a patient because you've run out of crystalloid to give. So that's not why we lose patient. It is because we fail to control bleeding in a rapid enough fashion. Um, so I think the trimodal distribution has changed. Uh, the number of papers that have, that have shown that. Um, and the golden hour concept, I think, is still a good concept to remind people that you don't have limitless time. But in many ways, it's the golden 15 minutes or the golden 30 minutes, or, you know, or sort of the platinum five minutes. Um, it depends on the nature of the injury. 
So let's talk about another adjunct uh, that's out there that you uh, are exploring, and that's this concept of emergency preservation and resuscitation, kind of based in cardiac origin and then kind of making its way to trauma. So tell our listeners a little bit about EPR, kind of how you're involved in it, what does it exactly entail, and kind of some preliminary results. Yeah, this is something that's, again, very near and dear to my heart. This was I was about six months out of my fellowship, um, and, and uh, Peter Ree, who's a dear friend and a mentor of mine, uh, we were together at the Uniform Services University, and we were working on um, suspended animation or hypothermic arrest or trauma. He got deployed. Um, I was sitting around, and it's like, you know, i got to do something with this time that I have, and I wrote an R01 grant, and to my surprise, Surprise and shock, it just got funded. No revisions, no nothing. Those were the good old days. So I was six months out of my fellowship with a with a large uh, DOD grant and a R01 NIH grant. And the concept here was um, based on the basic thing about the bleeding and what you can do to stop the bleeding. As I said, the, lar- the biggest pie if, in the pie chart if as a cause of death in trauma patient is bleeding. Now, if you look at the patients who died due to bleeding and look at the autopsy data, about half of them, give or take, have a source of bleeding that potentially, theoretically, can be controlled. Now, if you ask yourself why they could not control the source of bleeding, it usually is a time issue. And we were just talking about the time, the golden hour or 15 minutes. The brain ischemia time is about four minutes. So if you go into arrest, you've bled so much that you go into exsanguinating cardiac arrest. Four minutes or so, your brain is dead. In about 20 minutes, your heart uh, doesn't survive. The worst case scenario is probably when your brain is dead and your heart comes back. Um, so, you you know, the question that Dr. Peter Saffer asked himself, he was at University of Pittsburgh. He's, he was an anesthesiologist, so the father of CPR, was what you, can you do to keep the brain alive, to resuscitate the brain so the brain stays viable and it gives you more time to control the source of bleeding. So that was sort of the basic premise behind it. And it's not putting somebody in a state of suspended animation for years and months to come, but extending that five or 20 minute window to about a two or three hour window where you, as a surgeon, you can do something about controlling bleeding. And we looked at a number of different tools to prolong this window of opportunity, if you may. And the most powerful tool that we could see was hypothermia. Now, hypothermia works through multiple mechanisms. The obvious one is that it decreases the body metabolism. Um, it's called Q10, which is the sort of the change in metabolism for every 10 degree change in temperature. For the human body, overall, for the total body, it's about a factor of two. If I drop the temperature from 37 to 27, your metabolism goes down to half. For brain, it's a factor of about five. So the brain is, as you drop the core body temperature down, the brain can go on longer and longer without any oxygen delivery and a blood supply. Uh, the main challenge was how do you apply that uh, in a trauma setting? We use it in organ transplant, we use it in cardiac surgery, we use it in neonatal surgery. But in all of those settings, you induce hypothermia before you make the organ ischemic. For cardiac surgery, for example, for cervical arrest, you start cooling the body down and then you stop the heart. In trauma patients, it's the other way around. They're already ischemic by the time they come to you. And the challenge is, can you still do hypothermia as a salvage strategy? Um, That's why it's sort of the emergency preservation, the EPR part of it. So you're trying to preserve um, in a delayed fashion. Uh, Dr. Saffer and his team at Pittsburgh had already 
used um, uh, canine models uh, where they had uh, induced hypothermia, and they had shown that you can increase the brain ischemia time up to you know couple of hours if you can cool the brain down. Now they were using um, uh, models that did not have any surgical injuries, uh, and that sort of reflects the fact that he was an anesthesiologist. Uh, uh, and, you know, that was the sort of his focus. So we started um, using more surgically relevant models. And the model that we uh, finally settled on was an iliac artery and vein injury to induce hypothermia. And then sort of as a final insult was an aortic transection. With this vast, big vascular injury above and below the diaphragm leading to a circle, uh, leading to a cardiac arrest, the survival in clinical setting is close to 0%. And in these animals, instead of trying to fix those injuries when they had, once they had gone into rest, we just cooled them down. And we cooled them down to about 10 degrees Celsius core body temperature. And once the body is at that temperature, you can have no blood in the body, hemoglobin of one or two, no uh, measurable metabolic uh, uh, activity in the brain or heart or any, anywhere else in the body. And still you can keep them preserved for up to two to three hours with nearly a 90% survival. And we survived these animals uh, long-term. We brought them back, um, fixed all the injuries during the circle arrest, survived the animals, and we looked at cognitive function, uh, neurological um, uh, status, uh, memory, um, learning new tasks, uh, brain histology. And then we uh, got a little bit more uh, aggressive with that, and we added more injuries, solid organ injuries, for example, liver and spleen injuries, hollow viscous injuries, such as colon injury, to see whether the coagulopathy has any impact, whether uh, hollow viscous injury increases the chance of infection. So it was about five, six years of progressively more and more challenging animal models. So again, there were two sites working on it. Uh, it was uh, my team working at Uniform Services University and then uh, later at Mass General Hospital. And then uh, Dr. Saffer, and once he passed away, uh, uh, Dr. Pat Kohanek's team uh, at University of Pittsburgh. It has led to a FDA-approved um, DOD-funded uh, clinical trial uh, for EPR, which will be a multi-institutional trial. Uh, it's already uh, uh, enrolling right now in uh, Baltimore. So uh, do you have any preliminary um, results or patients that have been enrolled already? Uh, it, too early to say. So, I mean, the way the trial is designed, um, it will be patients who come in with either blunt or penetrating trauma. Most of them will be penetrating trauma where you do an edithoracotomy or something like that. Uh, they go into arrest and either you're going to pronounce them dead or you cool him. So it's more of a feasibility trial, whether you can actually do it or not and what the outcomes are. So I think it's too early to, to actually say whether it works or not. So the, the, when the team is not on, those will be the control patients, and they are obviously all dead. Um, and the, uh, the the days that the team is is on call and available, those patients would be uh, cooled down. The challenge uh, was really not in the uh, logistics of it. It's fairly simple in many ways because we're using tools and devices that are already being used by cardiac surgery, roller pump, uh, uh, sort of... Uh, um, heat exchanger, um, uh, oxygenator. I mean, these are tools that are used by cardiac surgery um, folks in every hospital across the country. The, the science behind it is pretty robust as well. The challenge was in sort of the moral, ethical side of it. 
know, these patients cannot give consent as they, they're already in arrest. You, know, you can't find the family members in time because they're going to die before you can do that. So it requires a waiver of informed consent and community consultation to start the trial. And that's a laborious, uh, slow process. But in many ways, it's, it's okay that it's slow because, again, you know, you, you're thinking about, uh, you know, uh, how the community would perceive it. Uh, we're talking about a very vulnerable patient population, the people who are uh, in arrest. So in, in Baltimore, I mean, it's taken a, a fairly long period of time to do the community consultation, um, going to schools and churches and taking out ads and, and creating the web pages and then giving the uh, the population a way to opt out of the trial if they don't want to participate, you know, having a, a wristband or a decal on the on, on the car. Um, but now the trial is, has started. So I think hopefully if we were having this conversation six months from now, I would have more data to share with you. That's excellent. Sir, at this point, we'd like to move on to the tips and tricks section of this podcast. Here we like to ask the expert uh, various measures you would use to get yourself out of a sticky situation. Um, you know, looking back at all your research and your interests, uh, we'd like to focus in on non-compressible hemorrhage um, and challenging areas of hemorrhage. Uh, so, um, you know, let's talk about a groin or axillary wound that's difficult to compress. What's your algorithm for managing these injuries? So a lot of it depends on, on where you are, but uh, let me give you a sort of a a broad view, and then we can uh, narrow it down to different sites. As I said before, if somebody is bleeding to death, they will live or die whether you can, based on whether you can control the bleeding or not. It hardly ever is whether you have enough blood or enough resuscitation fluid. So then it comes down to how you control the bleeding. Now, if somebody is bleeding in the groin and you can't control uh, it with the tourniquet, now there's some junctional tourniquets that are available now, you may or may not have one of those available, but you always have your hand. You know, put your finger on the bleeder. Um, there are now devices uh, that are uh, being developed that can actually control uh, bleeding in the pelvis, um, applied externally. Uh, some of them look like um, uh, things that we are using right now for doing uh, inguinal hernia repairs, for example, the balloons that we use for uh, for dissection. Um, there are abdominal binders and so on and so forth. But the, uh, the new development here is, is the uh, uh, intravascular balloon occlusion, uh, the Reboa. You can f- uh, pass a catheter through a femoral stake up the iliac artery into the uh, aorta. And depending on where you think the bleeding is, you can inflate the balloon and cut off the blood supply uh, downstream from that site. Not a new concept. Vascular surgeons have been using it for a period of time um, uh, a, a form of this intervention was used as far back as, as the Korean War, but now we have a commercially available, very easy to use device that you can put through. Uh, it's a seven or eight French uh, device that you can put it through a uh, through a sheet uh, put into the femoral artery. Um, similarly, if you have bleeding up in the uh, axilla, yeah, you can. Uh, put your finger on it. You can compress it directly against the bone. You can pr- uh, compress it against the clavicle, and you can rush the patient to the operating room. So a lot of it depends on where you are, whether the OR is readily available or not, whether you're in an austere environment where you have to rely on some external compression and devices, um, or you can temporize it with uh, external compression, and then you can uh, rush the patient to the uh, to the angio suite. But every hospital must develop a protocol uh, that works for their setting, depending on the expertise available, 
uh, availability of different resources, and then practice it. So, for example, at Michigan, we have all these uh, practice sessions where we bring in the nurses, the emergency medicine folks, the residents, um, the surgery team, the uh, uh, um, the radiology uh, and, and emergency medicine teams. And we run these uh, simulations uh, uh, looking at different types of bleeding patients to figure out, like, you know, how we're going to actually do it. And I think that's very meaningful because once a patient comes in and they're dying, you really don't have too many uh, chances to make mistakes. So uh, to summarize it, junctional tourniquets, uh, Reboa, um, direct compression, uh, using advanced hemostatic dressings that you can bundle in into the wound and, and, and compress, and then um, either operating room or intervention radiology suite. Now, the one thing, last thing I want to add to that is that I think going forward, what will happen is that in addition to all of these things, we will come up with uh, drugs and interventions that will uh, serve as a bridge to definitive care. Uh, for example, our team has been working on on a class of drugs called histone deacetylase inhibitors. And what they do is they make survivors out of non-survivors. Uh, we all have a number of genes and proteins that are for survival uh, pathways in all of our cells. Um, and we can with one administration of a drug, activate the survival pathways that are inherently present in all our cells, but are not being fully activated. And we can do that. Initially, this work was funded by DARPA, then was funded by NIH, funded by Navy, Army, and now we finished a phase one trial and be about ready to start a phase two and three trial. Um, and I think that's the direction we're going. Um, give an injection or give a drug that will... Uh, keep the injured alive long enough to get to definitive care. Well, that's fantastic stuff, and um, we will absolutely learn from that. It's time for our final five right now, and this is where we tend to get to know our guests here on BTK a little bit better, and we'll start off with number one. Do you play music in the operating room? And if so, what do you play? <laughs> so I'm not a big music player, but what I do is I um, – uh, I let the uh, the chief resident choose, uh, as long as it's not country western and it's uh, it, um, and it's not rap. Um, um, if given a choice, I would just go for classic rock. In your definition of classic rock, since most of our listeners think classic rock is Guns and Roses, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it sort of all depends. So I, I grew up in in. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, my classic rock is sort of more 70s, 80s kind of thing. But my residents think that's oldies. So, you know, it, it all depends, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Second question, uh, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests when you're not in the operating room? Yeah, I love to um, to read non-medicine books. So, uh, I, you know, it drives my family probably crazy, but I have a stack of books where I sit in my uh, – uh, in my sunroom, there's another stack of books on my you know, bedside table. You know, so I I read and I read pretty much nonstop. Um, uh, you know, given some time, I I can go and and hit some golf balls as well. But you know, with young kids, that's a little uh, little difficult to justify that um, um, that time allocation. Um, but that's what I would say. Like you know, probably uh, reading books that are not related to medicine and maybe cooking. Any favorites or recommendations for our listeners? So, um, uh, a book that I recently read, probably within the last year, is called *Sapiens*. Uh, I think it's a very thought-provoking book. Uh, book. Uh, 
by an author called uh, Harari. If you if you want to read one book this year, that's one. Um, uh, he's got a follow-up book on that as well, but I think the original book is much better. Yeah, we'll have to take note of that. Uh, next question, can you tell us about a favorite trip or vacation? Yeah, I just went to uh, Alaska. Um, so my, I've got two daughters. There's a, one is 15 years old, the other one is 12 years old. And I can completely see like just a few more years and they'll be heading to college. So what we try, try to do every summer is we do something that's not going to a big city, but going to a national park or somewhere where we can actually do something as a family. So last year we went to uh, Grand Canyons, which was pretty spectacular. We uh, we climbed down about maybe one third or half the way down um, on, on, on consecutive days, which was fun. And this year we went to Alaska. Uh, and I was uh, completely blown away. Uh, we went to two or three different areas in Alaska. The really, the uh, from Juneau, we went to uh, uh, Glacier Bay National Park, and then we went to Denali. Very different, but spectacular. Uh, I would highly recommend that. You know, the only thing I got to say is I had the privilege of doing that in between step one and two of the boards and went up over the Brooks Range and jumped in the Arctic Ocean by Point Barrel. I, I, that, I would absolutely agree with you. It was an incredible trip. And I, so, and I don't know how long that's going to promote, so uh, this, is, this is the time to go and enjoy it. Absolutely. Number four, what would you be doing if not doing medicine? That is very difficult question for me to answer. I mean, I, I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't doing medicine. Um, I would probably be running some kind of a business, maybe. Um, but I don't know what. <laughs> maybe, maybe a bookstore. Yeah, bookstore. Absolutely. I like it. I like it. All right. Last and final question. If, we could go, if you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give yourself? So if, as an intern, if I was uh, looking at a brand new intern or if I was looking at myself as an intern, I would just remind myself that this too shall pass. It's painful. My chief year, I loved it. I mean, it was pro you feel like on top of the world. It's, it's fantastic. Internship year, not so much. I mean, you know, you're, the gap between what is expected from you and your skill set probably is never as wide mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the rest of your, uh, your career. Um, so... Just have the long view is what I would remind myself. That's great advice. Well, Dr. Alamwe, thank you so much. From all of our listeners on Behind the Knife, thank you again for joining us. Well, thank you for, uh, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Until next time, dominate the day.